Well, it is great today to see all of you, and we do welcome you. Glad that you are with us either in person or perhaps checking this out online, or maybe in one of our venues or on our Moon campus, wherever it finds you. Thank you for joining us. Very excited about the possibilities that are in front of us as we open up God's Word, as we consider what He would be saying to us today, because I do believe that He has a word for us. Before we jump into that, just a couple of things to uh, alert you to if you aren't already aware. I love this season of the year because we have the opportunity to reach out in even extra ways and uh, work to bless people who are in need around us, certainly in our own community and beyond. And we've had a lot of those opportunities here lately and more coming up. One of those, I don't know if you are completely familiar with the fact that we are participating together with the Pittsburgh Food Bank to provide food for our community. And uh, we've been doing this for a number of months, partnering together with them. Some of you have jumped in and are, are volunteering in this ministry as well. But uh, the last time, we have one coming up uh, very soon. And uh, the last time we did this, it was actually over 250 families that were assisted with food. And loads of food as well that was provided for them, and we're glad to be able to be a part of meeting that sort of need in our community. Operation Christmas Child has already come and gone for us, where many of you packed shoeboxes, hundreds and hundreds of Pathway people packed shoeboxes and provided for kids that they're now going to have gifts, literally kids around the world, because of your generosity. We are in the midst of Project Angel Tree, where you are providing gifts for the children of prison inmates right here in our local community. And those gifts, by the way, are due this weekend if, uh, if you haven't already turned yours in. But many of you have jumped in on that ministry. And we also have Give Joy to the World that we're focused on throughout December as we are seeking to provide clean water wells to people who are in desperate need around our world. And this year, our 10th year of doing water, by the way, our 10th year of providing clean water wells, we are moving our focus to northern India. There are tremendous opportunities as well as tremendous needs in northern India. And along with providing water, which along with the water goes education, hygiene, and sanitation, sorts of education so that folks would understand what to do with the water that they have. Also, the gospel goes, and in a unique way, in northern India, actually wherever there is a water project, a new well that is drilled, there is a church that is intentionally planted, connected essentially to that water well. And so we're making an impact with the gospel in this predominantly Hindu culture and nation and uh, dynamic things that are going on there. So just wanted to continue to remind you of that. We are trying to rally all of that to be complete by Christmas Eve. And so if you haven't already taken part in that, and uh, we would ask you to prayerfully consider how God would be leading you to do so. Excited about all of those possibilities here in this season. On top of the many things that are just happening on an ongoing basis through Pathways Ministry. And I just want to thank you for your generosity in helping us to address all of those needs and those possibilities as well. We are in a sermon series that we are calling Imagine, where we are imagining throughout December 
where God might want to take us, how he might want to use us and to lead us. And uh, we identified last week, if you missed the first in the series, that was last week. Be sure to catch up on that online. But one of the things that we highlighted on that occasion was how difficult imagining can be for us. We're experts at it when we are children, but when we grow into adulthood, actually once we get into the teenage years, we start to set aside our desire and our interest in imagining because we've already come to the place where we've figured a lot of things out. And because of expediency and our wanting to just continue to move forward with something we learned once, we sort of stop imagining the new and the possibilities. And as a result, we sort of get stuck in ruts where we end up doing the the same thing over and over and over again when God, I believe, would desire to do new things in us. And this is going to be especially a challenge for us as we think about today's topic as well, because this is an area where we definitely have found a way forward and we know what it feels like, we know what we think it is, and so we have perpetuated moving forward in the same way over and over again. And it could just be that today as we open up this text, very important text, we're going to see that God might be calling us to something different, maybe a transformation in the way that we even think about this very important topic. So we're going to be headed there today. Now, as we get started, I just wonder, do you know what scam baiting is? Scam baiting. I know that you know what scams are, but do you know what scam baiting is? A scam baiter is one who actually is working to get revenge on or turn the tables on one who's carrying out a scam. It's a real thing. There are whole societies of people that are doing this. And so what they do is they feign interest in something that the scammer is trying to get you to buy into, and then they draw the scammer in to them as well, and they're wasting their time, and they're, and they're just kind of messing with them a bit, but they're also trying to get them to divulge some information that might reveal their true identity or might actually get them caught, or maybe just to scam them back. Again, whole societies of people are engaged in doing this sort of thing to get revenge on the scammers. It's pretty interesting. Actually, there are so many of them. They're actually trying to raise money to continue on in the work that they're doing, which is, is kind of a challenging thing to do, because what are you going to do? You can call people up out of the blue and say, hey, I want you to give me money. I'm scamming scammers, right? That doesn't, you know, are you really going to jump in on that? So it's a little bit of a challenge for them, but uh, it's a real thing, scam baiting. Now, scams are a big problem in our world, and they're happening on any of a number of different ways, or in a number of different ways, and you're familiar with them. There are are banking scams, where people are trying to get your bank numbers. There are the ones where you are told that you've won the sweepstakes, and all we need are your bank account numbers, and we'll dump all of that money in there. Or maybe an unexpected inheritance. Guess what? You've come into money. You have an uncle you didn't even know you had, but they died, and, and now we've got money for you. There are all sorts of them, but one of the most popular or one of the most effective scams is actually love scams. 
Love scams. It's a, it's a real thing. A scammer will create a fake profile on a real dating site, and then they will engage with you, and they'll try to draw you in. And sometimes they'll do this for weeks and weeks to try to earn your trust, and then once they have it, they will start to turn it around to, now if only you will help me to get over this thing that I'm in the midst of. I just need some money, or maybe you can give me an account, and I'll, I'll be able to dip into that, and I'll, I'll love scams. It's a real thing. And so people start to, I mean, not everybody is so gullible, or they, they say, well, well, could you send me a picture of you? And so, yeah, absolutely, I'd be happy to send you a picture of me. And what they do is they send a stock photo of a really handsome guy. And they'll say, well, what's the work that you do? And it's always just a little bit out there. And so there are some that are really popular that people will, scammers will use. They'll say, well, I work on an oil rig. So I'm out in the ocean, and so we can't meet up. Or I'm a doctor, and I work with an international organization is another popular one. Or I'm in the military is a very popular one. And another one is actually that I'm a pastor. That's another one that's used. And so what you have is this picture of a really handsome pastor. That's easy to imagine, I know. Not an amen, nothing. Amen. Pity amens. Those are the best. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. Well, we're not the first people to encounter scammers. Think about it. Adam and Eve encountered a scammer all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Isaac was scammed by Jacob and Jacob's mom. Samson was scammed by Delilah. And you can just look again and again in the Scriptures. You can look in the, in the New Testament and you see the same thing. In fact, in the New Testament, we find that there are actually people that are referred to as false teachers who came on the scene in all of these early first century churches that were springing up to try to lead them astray. And you want to know what one area was that they were particularly engaged in scamming? Love scams. Really. Now, it's different than what we have today. I mean, they had Christian mingle back then, but it's just the way they encountered one another. It wasn't a dating app, right? But love was one of those areas, or what love really is. There was a lot of false teaching going on about that. And so what we have is John, who is one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He writes on this topic because people were getting dragged off into false teaching. So he says, let me set the record straight. And so he does. And we're going to take a look at that passage today because it speaks a great deal about how we ourselves might recognize what this is all about and how we might overcome it. And it dovetails beautifully in with the story of Christmas as well and Jesus coming into our world. So we're going to take a look at that. The passage is 1 John chapter 4. And there's some verses there. We're going to take a look at all of these verses. So I invite you to go ahead and turn to that spot, if you would, please. This is a critical message for us, too, because we and our culture are also being influenced when it comes to love. There are messages that we're being bombarded with. There's a culture that we live in that is bombarding its own messages on us. And as a result, what love really is all about is getting diluted. It is getting morphed into something that that's not what this passage is talking about. And so John 
comes to us with this truth. And what we have the opportunity to do here is sort of strip away 2,000 years of culture, strip away 2,000 years of influences that are around us and say, let's just get back to where it started. Let's get back to the basic straightforward simplicity of what God's message would be for us and see what it has to say. Because we too, this isn't just, yeah, the world's way out there when it comes to love. Christians can fall into that same thing. The church can fall into the same trap of being carried off into misunderstanding. This passage is going to help to bring us back as we try to imagine love here today. That's what we're talking about. There are areas we need to imagine when it comes to this idea of what love really is, and it's going, to, it's going to force you, it's going to force us to open up our minds and hearts to perhaps think about this in a way that we've already set aside on some level. We're going to imagine love. Now, I want to show you a few different features of this love that we need to imagine, and the first of those is this, that we need to imagine a love that stands out. All right, three different areas. We have a love that stands out out is where we're going here. As John gets started with his instruction on the true nature of love, he says some things that are actually pretty jarring, and there are things that are going to force us, if we're really going to understand them, to stop and just imagine what is he trying to tell us? What is he trying to say to us? Beginning in verse 7, here's what he writes. He says, dear friends, or your translation might say, beloved, let us love one another For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. How many of you grew up singing these verses in Sunday school? All right, we've got several of you who who did that. And uh, they're excellent verses, and we should have those as reminders in our head. They're excellent. But what they are saying actually will challenge our understanding of what love really is, if we really dig down to what's here, all right? So right there, look at the end of verse 7. What it says is this, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Just think about that for a second. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Can that really be? Can that really be true? We've got to stop and ask ourselves that question. Is he really saying that everyone who has love for somebody else is a believer in Jesus Christ? Can it be that that's what he means? The scriptures say elsewhere that, no, there are other things involved. There's repentance that has to be involved. There's forgiveness that has to be involved. There is belief that has to be involved as well. It, can it really be just, if you love, then you're, you're in God's family? Or on the flip side, if it's not that, maybe it's the opposite, which is that only those who are believers in Jesus really love anybody else in their life. But that's hard to get to that conclusion, too, because I know plenty of people who are not believers in Jesus Christ who have a deep and abiding love for their spouse and for their kids. And I would never question the reality of the love that they have, that they experience. All right, so if it isn't that almost everyone's a believer because almost everyone loves, and it's not that those who don't believe in Jesus don't really love others, then how are we supposed to understand this part of that verse. This is where we need to imagine love in a way that oftentimes we miss, because if we can't, if we don't, we're going to miss the central feature of what John is actually trying to say here. All right? It's going to challenge your understanding. 
to try to just work out that little phrase that we've just looked at. There is a love that all mankind is capable of giving and receiving. All mankind. And I'm just going to use the terminology for it, human love. It's human love, all right? It's powerful and it's strong, and we see it in virtually all of the relationships around us. And just because we're calling it human love doesn't mean that we just generate it all on our own. If we were just completely left to ourselves, we would never generate any love toward anyone or anything because we would just be left in our own sinful nature, our own selfishness, and there would never be that demonstration. No, there is this human love that we have, and we have it in common with everyone because there is something else we have in common, and that is the image of God that is stamped on us. And because we all have the image of God, whether or not, or we've all been made in His image, whether or not we come to put our trust and our faith in Him or not, there are certain benefits that we all have in common. And this human love is one of those things. Every believer and non-believer has the capacity to carry out this sort of love. And we see it demonstrated all around us all the time. All the time. And because of that, it's possible for someone to proceed through all of life thinking that human love really is all that there is. And certainly that that's all that they need because they've come to experience it and that's where they're living. And so their perception is, well, that's just all there is. But there's another kind of love here. That's not the sort of love that John is talking about in these verses. You see, there's an upgrade There's an upgrade to that human love. When Carolyn and I were in Egypt about a year and a half ago, I guess it was now, it seems a lot longer ago than that since you're not traveling anywhere these days, it seems. So, uh, but anyway, we were there and we had one night to spend in Cairo, and then the next day we were going to see the pyramids. I mean, the pyramids, right? The, the Giza pyramids. And so we were so excited about that. So there's this hotel we were at, and on that particular night we were with a group of people. We were as part of a tour on that night, and so we all had this block of hotel rooms. And so we went and, and we checked in, and, and we were going to go to our room. And I just happened to think, because this was a hotel that we happened, it's a chain, and we happened to have, you know, this reward thing with them. And I thought, well, maybe we could get an upgrade out of this. And so I just said to the, to the person, I said, well, you know what, we do have this, and is it possible for us to get an upgrade? And they said, oh, no, no, no. There's no way you can get an upgrade because you're in a block of people. And besides, these are our best rooms. I thought, okay, well, fine. That's, that's fine. We'll just take our room key. But there was another agent behind the desk who was, or behind the counter, who was a little bit over to the side. And, and I could tell they were kind of listening in while we were talking. And all of a sudden, they went over to their computer and they started typing in. And, and the next thing I know, he looks over at me and he's like, Oh, Mr. McNichol, welcome to our hotel. You came all the way from America just to spend tonight with us. I thought, yeah, right. If that'll help me get an upgrade, this is just why we've come. It's just to be with you. And he said, we have a wonderful room for you. I did find an upgrade after all. And so we went to the room and and we opened up the curtains and actually we looked out the window and there were the pyramids. Right outside, I mean, they were across the road, but they were right there. 
it was an incredible upgrade, to say the least, and we're so glad that we were able to experience that. There was whatever, all the other folks in the tour, they were slumming, but we had the upgrade. You see, now that's what happens so often, is that we have this understanding that, well, this is as much as it is. This is as high as it gets when it comes to love. But it's not as high as it gets. We're satisfied there. We live there. We come to believe that that's it, but there's a whole upgrade that is available. And that's what John is talking about in this whole passage. That's what these verses are. And to understand them, we need to understand there's a distinction between what we're calling human love and what we're going to call divine love. Divine love. This is different. This is a love that is characteristic of the fullness of the love of God that goes beyond His image stamped on us to His presence alive in us. And because of that presence alive in us, we have the ability to live in the upgrade. But so often we're satisfied just to live in the downgrade. And sometimes we don't even really recognize that there's a difference, that it's even available to be found, but it is. And that's what John is trying to point out to us here. And what does that look like? What's divine love look like? It's sacrificial. It is selfless. It is others-focused. It's able to reach beyond barriers of politics and race and division and hatred and, and prejudice. As we're saying here in this point, it's a love that stands out when it's seen, when it is on display, you know it's different. And so just process backwards, work it backwards, and think, where have I seen a sort of love on display that just stands out? And it may very well be that you're like scratching your head, I don't know, I don't remember. It's hard to, or it's hard to think of a time when that was actually the case, when I've actually seen it on display. So when John says that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, this is what he has in mind. That's why he can say it's only those who know God who can demonstrate this sort of love because he's not talking about a mere human love that everybody can have in relationship back and forth. He's talking about something different, something higher, something greater, which is something that we have all been called to something that we're all supposed to have on display all the time. John says we're missing the boat. And so he brings this to us because we have the capacity to love in that way. It's all too easy to live in the manifestation of human love and just call it good. After all, there's a measure of beauty in it. There's a measure of God in it, as we've already said, but by the measurement of divine love, it comes up short. And John wasn't seeing that sort of love being lived out, so he shakes things up with these very pointed words that he's giving us in this text. We can't look at this passage and just shrug that off. See, I believe we need to imagine what our lives would look like if we actually lived out that divine love that's in us. That's where I want us to process. That's where I want us to step back and say, is this present in me? Is this the way that I live? When people look on the way that I am engaging with other people, is it causing heads to turn toward Christ? Because they see there is something different going on. Or is what they see in me not causing any heads to turn because it's the same love that they see everywhere. It's the same love that they see themselves demonstrating. Why would I be interested in your love? It's no different than my love. 
We get trapped in that. As believers, we're not making an impact because we're not displaying, we're not living out that which is ours. We need to imagine what that would look like. We need to imagine what would be different in our lives if we were living this out. This is the first thing that we would imagine, a love that stands out. Secondly, John leads us to imagine a love that shows up, that stands out, that shows up. After speaking of the divine love of God, John doesn't just leave us to wonder, I wonder what that would look like if you actually saw that. So he gives us two powerful demonstrations of that. Verse 9 is the first of those. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. Okay, it's going to be divine love here for sure because this is God showing the love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Merry Christmas. (laughs) That's what it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus coming into our world. That's an example of divine love. Why? Because it's sacrificial. Because it's looking to the interest of the other. It's selfless. It's considering how I might lift up and benefit the other person first and foremost. It's the Christmas story. Divine love on display. John says, you want more? He says, okay, let's talk about some more. He goes on to verse 10, and here's what he writes there. This is love, divine love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John moves very quickly from the cradle to the cross, and he could be pointing out things all the way along in Jesus' life because they're all demonstrations of divine love. So we can't say, well, I just don't know what it looks like. That's what it looks like. You say, well, that's, that's God. That's Jesus who's doing that. I can't live up to that. Why not? Because we have his Spirit alive in us. We don't just have the image of God stamped on us, which is great to begin with, If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have his image alive in you, which empowers you to do and live this very way. Sacrificial, seeking the highest good of others. Now, it's interesting that John emphasizes that this love is not that we loved God, but that he loved us. See, God didn't choose to love us because we loved him first. God didn't choose to love us because he owed us anything. Not at all. It's not what it's saying here. It was his, if that was just his motivation, it wouldn't be love. If he was just loving because we'd loved first, it would just be obligation. And many of us are living obligation and calling it love. No, you see, it's the fact that he gives us everything when he owes us nothing that makes it transforming. It's the fact that he gives us everything when he owes us nothing that makes it transforming. As we move forward in this Advent season, we need to take time to consider, to imagine this sort of love that is one-sided. It's one-sided. That's what it is. That's what God demonstrated. What did Paul tell us? Paul told us, God demonstrates his own love for us on this, that while we were still sinners, God died for us. Christ died for us. 
One-sided love is gospel love. It's sacrificial love. It's seeking the highest good and benefit for the other. And as soon as we move it into the realm of requiring that love would be shown to return or in return in order to keep the love flowing back and forth, as soon as we say, yeah, I'll love you back as soon as you love me, we've just moved it out of the realm of divine love. Divine love loves even when it's not loved back. That's what Jesus has done. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what Easter is all about, just demonstration after demonstration of that highest form of love. Would that be a characteristic of human love? Yeah. It would be. That sort of, I'll love you if you love me sort of thing. That would definitely be human love. And that's why in relationships centered in human love, many of them fail because the balance of reciprocal love gets off. And it's difficult for human love to restore that. That's why marriages that thrive aren't thriving in human love. They're thriving in divine love because they are living a sacrificial experience toward the other. And the other doesn't love you back in a divine love situation because they have to. They do it because they're simply living out their own divine love inspired from God himself. The world doesn't get this. I was reading one psychologist who, who wrote, one-sided love is not love. Her point was that if it's not reciprocated, then there's no real love there to begin with. But that's just not true. You can think of all sorts of situations, I'm guessing, where there, maybe not all sorts, but hopefully you can think of some. I'll give you a couple where there's sort of this one-sided love that very much is love. I think about the situation, and both of these are contexts that I've experienced. Think of the situation of a special needs child. Maybe that is so profound, the one I'm thinking of was so profound that the special needs child had no way that they could express any love whatsoever. In fact, the only thing they could do was make loud noises at seemingly inappropriate times and had no control over their body functions. Yet the love that I saw displayed from the parents to that little one was so profound and totally one-sided because nothing was being given back. Or I think of a guy who was in my former church whose wife decided that she'd found something better, so she picked up and she left. And through some shady dealing, she actually left this man completely broke also. Took everything that he'd helped them to earn as a couple through the years that they were married and just took it away. And she was off living in all sorts of things. And people were trying to get him to throw in the towel on it, say, just forget her and move on with your life. He was, no. I can't do that. I won't do that because she's my wife. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to work, that it would be restored. It was definitely a one-sided love, but it was beautiful, and it was powerful, and it was strong, 
Instead of saying that one-sided love can't really be a real love, might it be one of the most powerful demonstrations of what love really is? And there are times when we're going to be called and required to live out one-sided love. And instead of saying, that's not fair, instead of listening to a world's message that says, you don't need to do that, they're not giving it back, you don't need to give it in the first place. Now, it's not a reason for one person to take advantage of that either. But there are times if we're going to live out divine love that we simply need to be willing to give when the, other th- when the only thing the other person seems to be doing is taking. That's the example of Christ. While we were still sinners, he died for us. It's a beautiful thing. Now, you might wonder, all right, fine, where does, where does that leave us here? Where does that leave me? How are we supposed to respond to all of that? It's a great question. And the last, it's the last of the pieces that we need to imagine when it comes to this sort of love. Finally, we imagine a love that steps in. A love that steps in. John tells us where we need to take this, verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Since God so loved us, so loved us how? Sacrificially. One-sided when we didn't give anything back. Seeking the highest good of the other person. Since he loved us, so loved us like that, we ought also to love one another, he says. Understanding the true nature of the love of God will transform what we see this verse calling us to go and to do. See, we can't give this just some sort of casual, generic kind of treatment. That's what our world does. That's how we use the word. I love potato chips, right? I love Baby Yoda. I love Elf. Who doesn't love Elf? But that's not got anything to do with what John is asking of us here. This is a call to demonstrate that sort of divine love. This is interesting because John isn't telling us, this is, pay attention to this, this isn't, John isn't telling us that since God loved us, we should love him in return. It's not what he says. Now, it's appropriate for us to respond to the love of God on us by loving him in return, absolutely, but that's not what he asks us to do. Not at all. He's not suggesting in any way that what we do is God loves us, so let me turn from you, from everything else, let me turn to God, and let's just have our own little holy huddle. It's not what he asks of us. In fact, that's not even the common call that we find in the Scriptures is how to respond to God's love. What are we supposed to do? What does he tell us to do here? He tells us to take the blessings that we've received and use them to bless others. Here, let me pour my love on you, not so that you turn around and pour it back to me, but so that you take it and pour it over there, and then over there, and then over there. That's what divine love does. And why is that? John's heart, verse 12, helps us to understand. It says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. In other words, when we display that sort of love that Jesus has demonstrated for us, we become 
a manifestation of God. Process that for a moment. We become a sort of manifestation of God. We're representatives of the divine. That means that we must be willing to sell out to God, not to any lesser form of love. God is not honored when the world's looking at us or even when other believers are looking at us to see God. God's not honored if we demonstrate anything that is just a plain old sort of human love. And the world is looking. And so what I want us to do is imagine. That's what I'm calling us to here in this season. Imagine what it would look like to have the essence of divine love come alive in you. What would that look like in the interactions that you have at work? If this sort of divine love we're talking about were really on display, what would that look like in your neighborhood? What would that look like with your spouse who's been particularly difficult to live with lately or with your children. Oftentimes, it's the people that we live the closest to that we do the poorest job at loving the best. What would that look like for you in your house? What about with other believers? You know, it's interesting, but one of the byproducts of the coronavirus and election year division has been a polarization in churches in ways that we haven't seen in a very long time. The nature of our love for one another is being put to the test, and you have to wonder if it's God's sacrificial, seeking the highest good of the other person that's the, one, uh, that's the, the kind of love that's most on display. The inescapable message of this text is that John is not calling us to show a little more human love around us. He's calling us to a whole-scale sellout to what he's described here in this passage, to the transformational love of Jesus. Imagine what that would look like. Imagine. You're going to have to pause. You're going to have to stop. In our devotions, in our devotional booklet that we've given, and I sure hope that you're using those, we're transitioning as we come into this weekend. We're transitioning from imagine joy as the focus to imagine love. And so what I want you to do is to read all of those devotions as they come by every day and then stop to imagine. Take some time. Imagine what that love would look like in you if it was on display. Ask yourself, am I demonstrating kind of a, a human, generic kind of love? But since we're doing some love, it feels like we're good. We're good. And so we kind of chalk that up, and we've got this passage all covered when we haven't even really dug to the depths of what it's saying. So read the devotion. Imagine what God would be calling you to. Imagine as you do so, what would this look like in me? And where's an environment, where's a context where I can put that into practice right away? Right away. And don't be surprised when you see big results. Remember, no one has seen God. He's talking about God the Father there. Of course, we've seen Jesus in our world. But if you look at the context there, verse 9, he's talking about 
essentially it makes it clear that he's talking about God the Father. No one has seen the Father. But as we live out the love that he's demonstrated for us through Jesus, we're revealing the Father. We're revealing God to those who are around us. And that's going to absolutely transform your relationships. It's going to transform other people. It's going to cause them to turn and look at Jesus. Not just at you. They'll see you, but they'll also see Jesus. I wonder if you're willing to make the effort to stop and imagine what this love is. Ask yourself, is that what's on display in me? Or am I just getting by with loving folks on kind of a human plane or a human love when really John in Christ is calling me to soar? I've found this to be very challenging as I've processed these verses. And you might as well, but together as we do so, we're going to be living in such a way that's going to cause a world around us to sit up and say, tell me about your God. You're going to be turning heads and people are going to want to know what in the world is that about. And you'll have a message to proclaim. It won't be that you have to go and find them and try to work your evangelism tactics on them. They'll come to you and they'll ask, tell me what this is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's possible to live long stretches of life in a love that is lived on a human plane. It's human love. It's what everybody around us is capable of. It's possible that we've never really looked at these verses and seen what they're really calling us to. But what they're saying is that we can't really love unless we know Christ. Which means that we're really not living as you're calling us to live until we live like Jesus lived. It's mind-boggling. It's convicting. And I pray that it would also be motivating because the power to do so is pulsing inside of us. We just need to recognize it and open ourselves up to it and decide that's how we're going to live. Help us to get past this idea of it's got to be reciprocal. And I'm going to hold back my love until I see enough coming from you and then I'll decide to throw in. Lord, could it be that it's us who are contemplating this as we rise up and give off a divine love that we're going to raise the game of other people. And they're going to be inspired to do the same. Lord, I pray that we, in this Christmas season, as we contemplate the greatest demonstration of divine love that there is, Jesus come into our world, that we won't be able to help but go deep into it ourselves. It's transformational. It's going to require that we pause, 
that we imagine what that love would really look like in us and that we live it out. It's what we want to do, Lord. It's who we want to be. And I pray that you would work in us so that we would move in that direction. For we know that it's going to honor you and, it's no, and we know it's going to give a glimpse of you to those who are around us, that all glory might be given to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.